Why is there only one Power 5 conference commissioner regularly sending out tweets? Wouldn't it be nice to see that from Larry Scott? Stanford's nearly entire 2019 roster will be playing football in 2020, but they'll be playing somewhere else. The Independence Bowl gets locked in with the Pac-12. And Arizona State's trying to make a real run at the Pac-12 South. And how many teams will the Pac-12 get into March Madness? And why is there so much parody and chaos? I'm George Reister with Ralph Amston, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles. We appreciate your time, appreciate your energy. Thank you. Make sure you leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and send us an email to I'm mad at unafraidshow.com and we will for sure answer it, for sure get back to you. You know how it goes. Ralph, the Super Bowl's over now. And it was very interesting because if you were a Pac-12 fan, you saw a lot of familiar faces on one team and pretty much none on the other team. And the team with the none won the Super Bowl. So, like, San Francisco had so many Pac-12 players. You know, Stanford, Oregon, Mountain West. I mean, they had players from everywhere on the West Coast. But you look up and down uh, the Chiefs roster, as you did, how many players were from the Pac-12 footprint or from Pac-12 schools involved in the game? Not enough. Not enough. It's, this is a bad look for uh, the Pac-12 when it comes to, you know, the, the Super Bowl champions. They, they had a couple, you know, there, there's obviously practice squad, injured reserve, and unless they played a bulk of the season, I'm not really paying that much attention to them. But as we look up and down their roster, I mean, and we're not even talking some of the major contributors. They have Jackson Barton. If you remember him, he was, uh, he was at Utah last year, seventh round pick of the Indianapolis Colts. I think they cut him if I'm not mistaken, and uh, the Chiefs jumped in and swooped him up, and and he plays some offensive tackle for them. You know, other than that, there just aren't very many. If you want to say Terrell Suggs is Pac-12 representation, I mean, you can go ahead and do that, but you and I know he's not. He's from the old Pac-10 days. He's from when you were playing. <laughs> yes. Um, we. I mean, we, got, we, we would have had some Arizona State representation from the Pac-12 era outside of Terrell Suggs, but Mike Pennell got kicked off of Arizona State's team by Todd Graham, and he ended up finishing his college career at CSU Pueblo, and he's had a nice six-year career in the NFL. Now he's got himself a Super Bowl ring. Damian Williams, who had a hell of a game, probably should have been Super Bowl MVP, he actually uh, signed with ASU but didn't qualify. So he ended up going to Arizona Western uh, Junior College before finishing I can't I can't remember where he finished his college career but he it wasn't at Arizona State so there's not really I mean as far as actual Pac-12 representation um gosh I Mitchell Mitchell Schwartz from Cal and again I don't even know if he was Pac-12 era because this is his eighth year in the NFL so probably he probably spent some time at at Cal in the uh in the, in the Pac-12 era. And then, obviously, um, Matt Moore was a Pac-10 quarterback at Oregon State. It's pretty wild thinking that Matt Moore has a Super Bowl ring. Uh, but none of these guys are real, like, big-time contributors. 
this is a this is a Big Twelve and SEC filled team, you know, and then and then you got a lot of uh, Group of Five representation as well, and so it definitely I think is a little bit of an indictment of of the Pac twelve to have the Super Bowl champion not really be reliant on any of its players. And then it honestly, it goes a little bit further than that. If you look into it, if you look at just the Kansas city chiefs draft history, even just sticking with, uh, with recent history, right? So they didn't draft a PAC 12 player this year. They didn't draft a PAC 12 player last year. The last PAC 12 player that they drafted was actually the sixth round pick in 2017 who is the only player that they have drafted in the last three years that is not currently on an NFL roster. So hmm. that's see, bad. Well, see, that it's bad, but it's also kind of telling. Because when, when I got in the league, I noticed that draft picks typically ended up a little more geographical than, than you would think that yes teams will will take a flyer on other people but let, let's look at the team that I played for the longest you had the Jacksonville Jaguars they always for some reason draft a lot of players from Florida always i mean it's just florida's 2 hours away it's probably easier for them to get to see all of that and in their history so they drafted Gardner Minshew last year but Prior to that, their last pick of a Pac-12 player was Miles Jack in 2016. Miles Jack in 2016. And before that, you they had Marquise Lee in 2014. And it had and Brian Anger in 2012. And uh Tyson um Alulu Alalu. Forgot how to say his name exactly from Cal in 2010 and Mike Thomas in 09. I mean, like they will get some, but they've drafted probably four or five times as many Florida players, literally from the University of Florida, than they have from anywhere else. So I think that geography probably plays a decent part in it, but. It also is that the Pac-12 needs to get more players drafted. Yeah, I mean, I just I just look at the fact that they've they've in three years of drafting players that only one of them was from the Pac-12, and it was their last pick in the 2017 draft in Leon McQuay, and he's the only one out of all of them to no longer be in the uh, in the NFL. And then if you go back uh, a year before that to the 2016 draft. <laughs> they drafted Kevin Hogan. Remember Kevin Hogan, Stanford quarterback? Yep. They drafted him in the fifth round. He's already out of the NFL. And so if you if you look at it, in the last four years, the Kansas City Chiefs have only drafted two Pac-12 players. They are both out of the NFL, and they are also the only two players that the Kansas City Chiefs have drafted in the last four drafts that are not in the NFL anymore. That's horrible. But then if you if you do go back to 2015, they did pick Marcus Peters out of Washington with their first pick in the draft. He's I mean, he's with the Ravens. Now. He's got 27 career interceptions 
already. He's having a hell of a career. And they also picked Steven Nelson out of Oregon State in the third round. He's playing corner in Pittsburgh, so he's doing really well. But we're just talking about the last four years, which is really the amount of time in which we've seen sort of the Pac-12 fall off, fall behind financially. And so just looking at the Chiefs roster, if we're making it relevant to this podcast that we do here, George, it's just not it's not <laughs> it's not a good sign when there's only like two players on the team uh and and they're they're contributors they're not major contributors that have Pac-12 ties and that the only two players they drafted out of the Pac-12 in the last 4 years are both completely out of the NFL like that's just that's just not a good look totally totally i mean i mean look at what has happened to some programs like last year Nebraska had nobody drafted and they used to be such a powerhouse the big 12 for the eighth straight year the big 12 tied or had to outrate the least amount of draft picks by a power five conference but i mean they do only have 10 10 teams so you know if if they were number one that would be crazy so i do think that geography strength of conference all of these things matter and that's why recruiting matters so we're going to have National Signing Day, which is going to be completely uneventful compared to the um, early signing period because almost out of the top four, three, four hundred prospects, uh, how many un- un- uncommitted guys are there? Like 25, 30 maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it went from being a, when they first introduced early signing day, it went 50-50. And then when, you know, one year into early signing day, early signing day just is signing day. So we've already moved to probably an 80-20 proposition of Power 5 prospects being signed with the schools that they're ultimately going to go to. Yeah, so it, it is important to for the Pac-12 to keep players in the footprint. And I noticed that one of the first people always saying something positive about the SEC is SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. One of the first. He'll tweet it out. He'll tweet out, oh, most players drafted, most uh, championships, all these. He's always tweeting out positive things about the conference. And he's the, what, the only commissioner that is sending out tweets. And I'm just sitting there like uh, the Pac 12 in general. It needs more publicity. And that starts, I think, with the leadership at the top. Send out more, send out some tweets. I get Larry Scott will be, you know, bombarded with negative tweets. He will. But at the end of the day, so was Greg Sankey. This dude has tweeted over 6,700 times since 2011. The the new Big Ten, the, the Big Ten commissioner, zero tweets. Larry Scott, no account. ACC, um, no account. Jim Delaney, Big Ten, no account. And you're uh, but Jim Jim Delaney is being replaced by this guy named Kevin Warren, who has 167 from his time at the Vikings. So I I don't understand. I mean, why Ralph is not the Pac 12? Why isn't the Pac 12? committed to finding new ways to engage with the fans to send positive messaging out and they're just relying on the Pac-12 network instead of the commissioner 
Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of feels like he's hiding. And I, I think we would know we know what would happen if Larry Scott started a Twitter account. The replies would be an absolute dumpster fire. Um, but who cares? You don't have to read them. That's true. You don't have to read them. But I think what he's just afraid of. I think he's just afraid of the way that things would look. I don't agree. I think that the only way for you to sort of combat some of the negative information and stereotypes is for you to act as your own voice. And this is just another way in which I believe that, um, you know, it, it, it comes off as Larry Scott is hiding, but at the same time, it just, it's another way in which you have to try to justify his paycheck. Like, what do yeah. you mean you make more than everybody else, but you do less, especially in the most visible areas? I mean, you, but Ruff, you want you, you to talk about... He's running a network, though. He's right. running a network and a conference. So that's why he deserves two, 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 and two and a, some change checks, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, if you want to see something like where, where Larry Scott went to the... Um, he, <laughs> where he went all out... You go ahead and go to pack12.com, pack-12.com. You scroll over to the conference tab on the far right side, and the third tab down says Commissioner Larry Scott. And all this webpage is is just a giant praise of Larry. It's literally his resume. Okay, but he's not applying for a job anywhere this is a complete vanity project for him <laughs> to have his own web page on the pac 12 conference the conference of champions website who is going to the pac 12 website just to view larry scott's resume nobody just i am right now the accomplishments of of larry scott oh like, my gosh and it's just it's it, it for everything that people don't like about larry scott it is just corporate speak positive adjective bingo i mean just I mean, at the bottom of this let me read this at the at the bottom of this uh where it says recognition and service scott has often earned recognition for his visionary leadership he has been a finalist for the sports executive of the year award given by sports business journal and was awarded the vision award by synopsis sports you ever heard of Synopsis Sports? I have literally no idea what that is. Scott was given the Americanism Award by the Anti-Defamation League in tribute to his mission of fostering positive change through sports. He currently serves on the Anti-Defamation League board as the vice chair. He also serves on several other boards. (laughs) And I mean, that's if this is what does this do for the Pac-12? What is Nothing. a web page with 1500 words of Larry Scott's accomplishments buried on it with no contact information? What does that do? How, how does it help? I it just don't understand what it doesn't. And I agree with you. He needs to be his own voice and yes, he'll get some backlash, but, but so what I was reading. Um, I read a book recently it was a big time it, it it's a a big time book um about leadership it's by this guy named Ben Horowitz it's called the hard thing about hard things 
building a business when there are no easy answers. This dude has been wildly successful as a CEO, name brand in the CEO world, run huge company, Opsware, all these just done so much business. And he talks about in the book, he uses examples from other great CEOs and all of this is you know that you have a bad culture in a company when all you hear are positive things and there's never any talk of the negative or the negative is made to view as a positive that if that if all they want to tell you is the positive everything's going perfect internally inside the company or even externally it, it, it is a ruse it is a shell and nobody will believe it. And when when we're sitting here watching the Pac-12 fall behind the Big Ten, SEC, ACC, uh, and Big 12 financially, we're seeing every year in the college football playoff, I mean, not even the college football playoff, but as soon as the season starts, I don't know if the Pac-12 can get in. That's from before a damn game is played. That's what we're hearing. If we're, if we're seeing a mass exodus from... Of, from recruits to a to other conferences because they don't believe that they can win championships in the Pac-12. And all we're getting is positive messaging. Something is wrong. We need to we need him to say, look, something's going on. We're gonna get it, get it fixed. It's not going the direction that we want to go. Oh, but but Ralph, we're we're looking at selling our equity stake. Look at 2023, look at 2024 when the new media rights deal is up. Okay, well, let me, are we supposed let me to believe you. this BS? Let me stop you right there. So the big gamble, the big gamble is on Larry Scott, right? Keep me around because in 2024, we are in the unique position of owning all of our network rights. Therefore, we will be able to negotiate a deal with some future type of uh, technology and or platform that may not exist yet, but we'll be in prime position. And me as Larry Scott, knowing the ins and outs of all of uh, the workings of what we have going on and keeping me in position for the sake of continuity and for the sake of negotiation is what will ultimately pay off for the Pac-12, right? Am I missing anything? That's what we're supposed to believe, right? Yeah. They outsourced this process. They announced this last year. They they entered into a partnership with, with a company called The Rain Group, R-A-I-N-E, and they announced that the, that group would be spearheading all of the Pac-12's future media rights uh, negotiations. So Larry Scott isn't even really involved in that. They they hired a company to do this work for them the way that a school would, a school president would hire a search firm in order to collect coaching candidates. So it's not even technically Larry Scott getting anything done or doing anything unique. This is that scene from Elf where this is that scene from Elf where uh, they're all sitting around the desk and he's saying, so my writers, my crack team come in here and they pitch me the idea of bringing in another writer, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's essentially what the Pac-12 has done. The rain group is going to head up 
any of the Pac-12's future negotiations for the sale of media rights. They announced that 12 months ago. As far as I know, nothing brand new has been rolled out except uh, one new partner who seems to be a little bit on the <laughs> the very new and very infant side of things as far as oh uh, you know yeah the new media partner who's who's like selling deals for what what like 10 cents on the dollar very like yeah it's it's definitely it's it it's not something that i think would please pac 12 fans that's for sure so i i just i i don't know what it is that larry scott does he's got what seems to be a deep and competent team of communication staff that, that work under him. I don't know how many of them are on Twitter. You know, I, I don't know if Andrew Walker, the vice president of public affairs, I don't know if he's out there tweeting stuff on behalf of the PAC 12. I know that nobody, the casual fan doesn't know his name. Nobody knows Josh issue, the director of public relations. Nobody really knows his name. You know, everything always filters back to Larry Scott. And what is Larry Scott doing? Well, he's showing up at football games every once in a while and PAC 12 media day and answering a set uh, of of questions or not answering another set of questions, and it just it, it just feels like the Pac-12 falls further and further behind. You know, whereas it just announced what the SEC is taking home forty four million per school for their media rights agreement. So wh- what does it do to own all the rights to your own network if each school is getting at least ten million less per school per year? Oh, that that's just the SEC with the forty four million. The big twi- the Big Ten paying out fifty five million. Fifty five million dollars. Like like I the problem to me, Ralph, just just it I don't understand how Larry Scott keeps pulling the wool over these presidents and and, and athletic directors' eyes because it's clear as day to me. I've been in business multiple years on multiple businesses. The best of and, and played sports, they c- coaches used to say you can't make the club in the tub. So that means that you can't uh, make the team when you're on the sidelines. But also in business, I've learned that the and in life, just in general, the best ability is availability. That's the most important thing that you have is availability. Because if you're not available, then you. Did like if if you're sick and your wife shows up, somebody shows up to take care of you, then they're available. If you're not available, you got nothing going, dude. And the Pac-12 is not available for people to see. I just don't think that there's motivation, proper motivation, to do anything different. Because to go after Larry Scott would be to go after the hand that feeds. Who bites the hand that feeds, right? Who Everybody complains about their boss in every job in America. But when it comes time for that direct deposit to hit and the boss is on the way out the door on a Friday and says that dumb thing that you hate, you say it back. <laughs> right? You're right catch, about that. Yep. Catch you on the other side, Bob. Not if I catch you first. You know, it, it, <laughs> you hate the dude. You hate the dude, but your direct deposit just hit. You don't have energy to be mad anymore. And so uh, it's not like the president of the university's salary is going to go up if Larry Scott does something better. You know, the coaches, and this this is the other thing that you got to take a long, hard look at, is 
It's not like, uh, it, I mean, it just came out that Georgia spent $3.7 million on recruiting alone last year. $3.7 wow. million on recruiting alone. And I, that doesn't include, I, from as far as I know, that doesn't include any salary of any kind for any coach. That's just the, the expense of recruiting, whether that's probably the graphics department or, you know, or the, uh, the visits, um, but 3.7 million, that's more than I think almost every PAC 12 school pays their head coach. Yep. On and that's and alone. that's why the SEC can always poach your damn coaches. I mean, yeah. look, look at this. John John Wilner just put out another uh, scathing interview. I'm sorry, review of the Pac-12 finances. Um, check check out his Twitter. It is absolute. I, I'll, I'll repost it um, on mine. And he he talked about that that the um the sec's conference game of the week the one that's on cbs is currently valued at 55 million dollars annually that that's just that particular the game of the week it's moving to sc to espn for a payday in excess of 300 million dollars per year so in other words the sec will earn more each year for 15 to 16 broadcasts which include the SEC championship game, then the Pac-12 schools will receive each year from the entire Tier 1 contract with Fox and ESPN for 44 football games. Three times as many football games, and they're going to earn more. What kind of stupidity is that, but we're still going to try to sell the Pac-12 network as a national brand when it's only it was only available in 18 million households last year, Ralph. 18 million. That right. may and sound again, like I'm- a lot, but that's but some of those people don't watch football. And you have to think about it on top of that compared to a hundred million households yeah. for ESPN. Well, how many people have sling that don't even know that the Pac-12 network, these are, and that is counting people who have sling, but don't have a package that includes Pac-12. That just means it's available to them if they want to pay the extra five or 10 bucks a month. I have to, in order to watch the, because I cover sports in the state of Arizona, in order to watch the Suns and the Diamondbacks, I need Fox Sports Arizona. So I pay 50 bucks a month for YouTube TV. I pay another 40 bucks a month just for Sling so I can have the Pac-12 network and that's it. I pay 40 bucks a month for one channel. For one channel. It's ridiculous. And you talk about, you know, the the differences between conferences. You mentioned the fact that it's 22 million per school per year that the Big 10 is getting over the Pac-12 right now. Do you know what that is over a 5-year stretch conference-wide? $1.3 billion over a five-year period. And that's just if things stay the same, George. They're not, though. They're yep. expanding every single year. And so that's over the next sad. five years, $1.3 billion more billion will be pumped into Rutgers than USC, into Michigan State over UCLA. And UCLA, I'm glad you mentioned it. We talked about it on the last podcast. 
UCLA is running in it. They ran in a deficit in 2019 and are expected to run in a deficit again in 2020. So how how is UCLA supposed to recruit? How are they supposed to, uh, you, you know, build new facilities, all of this stuff to keep up? How are they supposed to pay competitive coaching salaries? The 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 uh, truth is, if you if you live and and um, and try to and try to make a great living out of the scratch and dent bin, it doesn't work. Yes, you need to get value, but sometimes you just get what you pay for. I mean, like like so. How do you expect to keep good coaches when you can't pay them competitively? When even the worst teams in the SEC, like teams that have never ever won an SEC championship, like Mississippi State, they can pay your your assistant coaches two times as much than your Pac-12 team can make. You so have the the Pac-12 champion coach. Making under what I, I think Mark Murrow Cristobal is making under three million dollars a year, and he's got the best team in the Pac-12. If he were in the SEC, he'd be making six, six, seven million dollars, and then and then people are going to wonder why if he wins again that that he's that he leaves to go somewhere else. Duh, so, man, duh. So I'm glad that you brought that up because because Arizona State just lost defensive line coach Jamar Kane who was at Fresno State last year, Arizona State this year. They just lost Jamar Kane to Oklahoma. Now, that's unique because Jamar Kane was one of the primary recruiters on this Arizona State staff who landed all of the Northern California kids, uh, one of which was his nephew-in-law. So Omar Norman Lott, a four-star defensive lineman, committed to Arizona State to play for his uncle. You would figure that Jamar Kane would have plenty of reason to stay at Arizona State. But he left because going to Oklahoma gave him the opportunity to jump from making $290,000 per year, which is what he was making at Arizona State, to a position where Ruffin McNeil, the outgoing Oklahoma defensive line coach, was making $575,000 last year. Why would you not? ASU fans were upset about this because now ASU is going to have to hire their sixth defensive line coach in six years, three of which now have left for higher-paying jobs in another conference. Shane Nua left for Michigan. Jackie Ship left for the University of Missouri. Missouri, think about think about that. Missouri can pay more than Arizona State, right. right? So, and this is going to keep happening to Pac-12 schools. It's going to happen over and over and over again when other teams who see that California and the West are vulnerable in recruiting, they're going to bring in guys with California ties. They're going to pay them two times as much. What's Jamar Kane supposed to say? Sorry, nephew, but like, I have the chance to make more after taxes this year than I was making last year before taxes. Think about this, Ralph. Is we we we're, we're, we're talking about all these numbers. Here is the biggest problem of them all: is that you run into a situation to where you get so far behind that you can't catch up. 
That's the problem. Is that is that uh, Larry Scott is trying to sell us that 2024 is this magic pill that's going to fix everything. All this money is going to be flooding in. Uh, no. I mean, even if the money is flooding in, he, let's let's say a scenario where where he's right, Ralph. You would have already had six years of falling behind, of not as good a recruiting classes, which means that you won't get the same level of recruits because they want to go to the NFL and they want to win championships. So that means you won't win a championship. You won't do all these things. And then it's going to trickle over. It, you're going to be so far behind that by the time you get this deal, the other deals will be up. And then your great deal will be just on par with the with these deals. Like So then you're going to be right back. It, you are chasing your tail. And anybody that thinks that 2024 is going to fix the mess, it's not. It's going to take long. It, it's got to get fixed now. Like anybody that thinks that they can this this can keep getting pushed out to the future is a hundred percent wrong. It, this is you are at death con. The Pac-12 is at death con one right now. I I, I I can't say it any other way. Am am I overstating this, Ralph? No. And the numbers are just crazy. Like we're talking about. I just I just said billion with a B a moment ago. Like think about it. We're in the year twenty twenty right now. Thirty years ago. 30 years ago, Stanford had an athletic budget. This is all sports of $22 million. All sports. And now we're talking about a $22 million a year difference in Stanford and Penn State just for broadcast rights revenue distribution. Yep. The money is absolutely crazy. It's a giant balloon. Who knows if it'll ever pop. And that honestly might be the Pac-12's best opportunity to catch up is for everyone else to fail. And that, But everybody that else is not truth. going to fail. The, the, the viewership is up. They're selling more ads. It's not going to bust. Like it, it just doesn't. I mean, people, people thought the NFL was going to bust. It's not. It's only getting bigger. It's football. Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> Ralph. I, I'm, I'm just so just so hurt and so frustrated by well, see, but that's just it. We're we're more upset than the than the than the people who are taking home the giant checks and who feel too comfortable to move forward and to push forward. That's just it. It's too it, it, you know, the, the nice thing about Pac twelve country is you got a bunch of laid back folks and maybe that's also maybe that's also the, the ultimate issue is that People are just happy making what they make because they got their piece of the pie. And it's a bigger piece of pie than they ever could have imagined in a million years. It's not like we're talking about the difference between poverty and wealth. We're talking about the difference between wealth and mega wealth. And yep. where is really that motive? I know, honestly, George, if I had a million dollars in the bank and I had an opportunity to work my butt off to have $2 million in the bank, I don't know if I'd take that opportunity because I have a million dollars in the bank. Right? And so that's just me. That's just my attitude. And I don't, I just don't know what motivation is there for these um, university presidents, for these university athletic directors to take a look at Larry Scott and say, Hey, Larry, objectively, not opinion, objectively, you make more than anyone. Objectively, we pay more in rent than anyone. Objectively, we are taking home less than anyone. We would like to rectify this 
or please stop calling us the conference of champions. Exactly. Exactly. Cause we're going to be the group of, we're going to be in this weird purgatory place. Like, like, like you're a, you're a power five team, but eh, you kind of group, you're kind of group of five ish. You know, <laughs> like we are, I mean, we are the S the ACC right now, except for the ACC has Clemson. So I don't know. <sighs> but the ACC, topic. <laughs> ACC, the ACC has two national championships in the last six years too. Yes. Very, right? very true. And, and they're available. They're on YouTube TV and Hulu TV. Hmm. Right. They may not be on direct TV, but they're, but, but they're there. They're still available. Now on to more Pac-12 news that is, I'm not sure whether it's good or bad. So we find out that the Pac-12 is now into a bowl agreement with the Independence Poll, which is in, I believe, Shreveport, Louisiana, and who the opponents will be. So the opponents in 2020 will be Army. And then in 2023, BYU. In 2024, it will be Army again. And me and Ralph are on record on just, and anybody sensible says stop scheduling service academies. You saw what happened in Washington State versus Air Force. You saw what happened the year before um, where Army almost beat Oklahoma. You know, like, Scheduling services academies is not a good move. And you're just, I, I feel like you're just putting yourself in a position to potentially lose bowl games, Ralph. Probably. Um, I'm, I'm interested in this. I mean, I, the preset opponent thing is weird for me because what happens if BYU goes two and 10? Does oh, it- that's legit. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not necessarily sure how that's going to work, but I will say uh I kind of like playing against a service academy in a bowl setting. Not so much regular season, but you know, I remember Arizona State, I believe in the Sun Bowl took on Navy a few years back and it was like a 60 to 30 game or something like that. I I think that I think taking on the service academies in a bowl game is appealing just because there are very few bowls that matter anyway. And so it's, it's kind of cool to see a different kind of opponent every once in a while. I think that PAC 12 fans will be happy to make a trip out to, to Shreveport, maybe try something new. Um, You know, I know that, you know, ASU being in the sun bowl three times in six or seven years is, getting a little old for them that, 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 you know, there's teams that have kind of repeated performances at the Vegas bowl. There's um, I don't know. I just, I, I think that it rotating the bowls around kind of feels a little bit more fresh. It feels a little bit more fun. I'm just a little bit confused by the, the preset. So if in 2020, I don't think this is going to happen because army's actually putting together a pretty talented roster and they're well coached. But if army goes four and eight in 2020, then they, do they get to play a Pac-12 team in in 2020 or or not? Uh, and then the BYU game is actually against a Conference USA opponent. So, um, yeah, it's it, I don't know. The whole thing is just it's really really weird to me because 
Army Pac-12 is 2025. BYU Pac-12 is 2024. BYU already plays a bunch of Pac-12 teams. I'm not sure any Pac-12 team really wants to see BYU. I like the new opponents. You don't really see Army come out west very often. So uh, that that could be fun. I don't know. I guess I don't have well, much of an opinion yeah. on this until I see it executed. <laughs> well, the, the thing is that they were sold that, oh, the Pac-12 recruiting footprint that, you know, that – other teams that the kids in Louisiana will get a chance to see Pac-12 teams. And I'm like, okay, which Pac-12 teams will be going down there to go play Army and BYU? I mean, it may be a good recruiting pitch for Army, but how many kids are really going to be willing to leave uh, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, or area surrounding there to go? I mean, what teams will be playing in that game? Washington State, Oregon State? Arizona, maybe, I mean, what teams would realistically be playing in this game, Ralph? I mean, yeah. that that kids would be like, oh, yeah, I'm going there. You do get a couple of Louisiana kids uh, heading to Pac-12 schools every single year, and I think one of the reasons is that there's just so much talent there, but only so many kids that LSU and the Texas schools can soak up. And I think some kids just want to head west, and so – you know, you there there are definitely some good Louisiana players that make it out west. I know that George Lee, you know, five year defensive lineman, you know, he he was playing for uh he was playing for Arizona State. Jalen Bates went from Arizona State to Colorado State. So you do get some of those kids coming out, but not not very many. You know, I Louisiana is is definitely on the upswing as far as the amount of talent there, and it's just gonna stand a reason that with the kids that like to leave where they're from, that you'll get a few, but I honestly don't think it's that much of a recruiting advantage. How many bowl games actually serve as a recruiting advantage? Just how often do we hear that the actual region that the bowl is in helps some of these teams out? You know, I, I don't see kids from Tucson going to where, you know, to any of these schools where the Arizona bowl is played. I don't see a ton of kids from San Diego. Yeah getting enticed by the, by the holiday bowl. So I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a super positive angle. Um, I, I wonder what the appeal is for the PAC 12 to enter into this agreement. Is it an extra bowl? What if not everybody qualifies from the PAC 12, much less the opponent? Is this just a guaranteed bowl? No matter what, I definitely love some more details on on what's going on here. For sure. Um, earlier, <laughs> um, after I read it, re- retweeted John Wilner's article, he replied to me and he said, is there a DEFCON zero for the <laughs> for the money situation <laughs> in the Pac-12? Is there a DEFCON zero? And I said, well, no. How, however, I guess the, the conference imploding financially will, will be DEFCON zero. Um, oh, we we do have another Pac-12 player heading out of the footprint. You have KJ Costello heading down to Mississippi State. You know he had been a multiple year starter at Stanford, and Mike Leach gets him a quarterback who who I believed this year would should have had a good year. Like I remember when we were talking at the beginning of the season. I thought KJ Costello, if they allowed him to sit back and throw the ball a lot, 
would be a really good quarterback. And now he gets a chance to, I, I think, which can propel him to be a potentially very intriguing NFL prospect because he clearly knows how to run a pro system because he played at Stanford. All the checks was able to execute those things very well. Then he goes over to Mike Leach and learns how to run the air raid. And he's kind of mobile too. I think that this is a huge chance for KJ Costello to improve his draft stock, help Mississippi state play well. I mean, I think that this looks like a home run all over for the kid personally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could be good. I'm trying to think of a quarterback who who maybe was similar to K.J. Costello that played in a Mike Leach system. And the best that I can currently come up with is Connor Halliday. Uh, he, you know, he played from, from 2011 yeah. to 2014. I don't know what his story. Was he like a walk-on or something that had to play? Came in as a freshman, uh, went off, and then held the job down for three years. Uh, but Mike Leach had a, a lot on his plate with working with with Connor Halliday. This is supposed to be a high efficiency offensive system, and he was getting the yards from him. And you could see the progress that Halliday was making. You know, he completed fifty two percent of his passes, which is garbage for a Mike Leach offense back in two thousand twelve. Yeah, and that jumped that jumped eleven percent to sixty three in 2013 and then all the way up to 67.3 in 2014 coincidentally 67.3 would be the lowest completion percentage for the program as a whole since 2014 three times in the last four years washington state's quarterbacks have completed more than 70 percent of their passes on the season and so you know that means that you're definitely going to have to see a major step forward from KJ Costello if he wants to keep that going because this is somebody with 62.6 career uh, completion percentage and so may- maybe it's a throwback to a little bit of the Connor Halliday days but he's talented enough that I think that if Mike Leach gets a hold of him and works with him that uh, he- he's got a quick enough release he's intelligent enough that I think that he can he can run that offense successfully, but it's definitely not going to be what you were used to seeing the last couple of years with Anthony Gordon, with Gardner Minshew, or even with Luke Falk. Like this is just a this is going to be. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period for Costello, but it's an upgrade over what they have. And I think it's a really good opportunity for Costello to show off that he can play in multiple systems because there are multiple systems across the NFL landscape now. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully he does well, but I'm very interested to see how Stanford's, um, I mean, how Stanford's team looks next year because they have just been, I mean, I've never in my life. Well, well, obviously the transfer reporter hasn't been around very long, but but never in my life have I ever seen this many people transfer from a university. And I mean, just just so quickly. And then to make it crazy, to make it even more crazy, pretty much all of them are immediately eligible. You got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 players. You're losing 16 scholarship players. 
a lot of starters as well. Yeah. So they, the, and probably the most important starter that they lost was Henry, Henry Haddis, who's going to Arizona State. I mean, he's an NFL lineman. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Late, I mean, late round, but he, I mean, let's, he's not like a can't miss prospect or anything like that. But this is a kid that is, is, is genuinely, um, the real deal and is probably a top 10 offensive lineman in the conference going into next season. For sure. And, you know, and then, then they also lost uh, Debrie Hamilton and Dylan Powell as well. And these are kids because sometimes you see kids get in the transfer portal and they're not going and they're um, and they're not finding homes or they're going down. Nope. Stanford to Duke. Stanford to Arizona State, Stanford to Indiana. You know, like their kids are getting picked up. That means that they are talented. So, but but they did have a couple kids stay, like uh Thomas Schaefer and um and Scooter Harrington as well, one of their their tight ends. But this has just been an absolute just Okay. Even... So, answer me this. So, I want I want to talk about two different things with this. Uh number 1, did you see the Darren Ravel tweet where he took where he took the news of KJ Costello transferring from Stanford to Mississippi State and turned it into some like weird insult? Oh, mm-mm. I didn't see yeah. his original tweet, but I saw you tweeting about it. Yeah, so the this is Darren Ravel is I mean, he's a weirdo. Uh and he gets a ton of engagement and attention. I think if, you know, we live in a new age where instead of, you know, the the classic like vampires that drink blood to survive, Darren Ravel drinks retweets. <laughs> he is Twitter's Dracula. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, he, he, um, he took the news about KJ Costello going from, from Stanford to Mississippi State and he wrote, alternate headline, Costello goes from school ranked sixth academically by U.S. News and World Report. To number 211. <laughs> what is the purpose that? And of course he got ratioed because he gets ratioed at a minimum of once per day. But what's the point of saying something like that when we obviously he know graduated. That, a, right. So he's got a Stanford degree. He's on to his master's. And this is a football related transfer anyway. This is him trying to improve his shot at the NFL. Why take a shot? and what they have going on there in Starkville. <laughs> it just seems highly unnecessary on his part. He may not have realized that he already has his d- degree, but the, the funny part I thought about it was is the argument where he said, no, I'm giving you clicks. I'm just rewriting oh. the headline because I write it better. Oh yeah, like he's the Twitter's Robin Hood or whatever. He He's he's corny. But in here, so here's my other one. What if, and you got to hear me out on this, because we are all looking at the the grad transfer exodus out of Stanford as a crisis, correct? Okay. We're looking at it as a crisis. Only only because you can't just replace those scholarships. It's not like they can go back and sign 40 players. Right, right. Uh, And that one, that is a really good argument about what I'm about, uh, against what I'm about to say. But what if... This is actually a benefit. What if David Shaw can essentially market this as come to Stanford, we will play you immediately, 
and you will have the opportunity as a multiple year starter to decide, am I going to the NFL or am I going to find another system to play in to showcase my talents? Because, you know, Michael Williams, he's a multi-year starter. He's one of the players that's transferring out. And, and you know, he he actually was quoted by uh, 24-7 Sports as saying, David Shaw encourages his players to explore options, knowing how hard it can be to get into grad school. He's not, And so and that's not even to say, like, these guys are, tra- are replying to Stanford grad school, but that their mind is made up that, like, once I reach the point where I would be going into my fifth year of college, I need to be looking for that other opportunity to broaden my horizons. So, Or what maybe if, just redshirt them. Yeah, I mean, like they're, they're, like normal people, the way they're better their fifth year than they are their fourth year. Well, but then, so then that that's the other thing. So yeah, you could you could redshirt them so that they're so that they are are better their fourth year. But the the actual academic progress rates probably not going to change because these kids are coming into college now with the intent of graduating as soon as possible in the event that they do have to transfer. So you would be asking someone to what slow down on their, their academic progress. No, you know, take just, five just, years. Just instead take of four? junk classes. Your like, just take junk classes. Your last, your, your fifth year just for that fall. I mean, that's it. I, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. And I obviously, obviously they would probably rather keep all these players than lose them. But if that's part of the appeal of going to Stanford, then I could see how that would be a huge uh, uh, or potential recruiting win for them in in basically saying like, hey, it's more and more fashionable for people to go to multiple colleges to have multiple experiences in their college playing careers. Once you've established yourself, then you you essentially have the pick of the litter as far as where you go and showcase your talents in your final season. Stanford is a place that you can do that with no judgment at all. And if that's if that that would be a good way to set themselves apart, but I think it's obviously more born out of necessity. Uh, they would rather have these players. But if David Shaw really doesn't care and he's encouraging players to go out and and you know these 16, 17 players that are all going to be on different teams next season, if they don't have a single negative thing to say about Stanford's program or David Shaw, and that's what I'm just waiting to leak out is someone to say something negative and it hasn't happened yet then maybe it's just a matter of saying like, oh, Stanford's a really cool opportunity to go and get a Stanford undergrad and then have the opportunity to go and showcase my talents in a system that maybe benefits me more moving into the next phase of my life. Okay. Let's just see how that works out in terms of winning. That that sounds nice, Ralph. It, it sounds, I get it. I get it. Your Your, your theory is not outrageous. However, in practicality and application, we're going to have to see how that works. Because right, I'm I'm basically treating in this scenario, I'm treating Stanford like the good luck Chuck thing, right? Like whoever dates uh, Dane Cook in that movie, oh the yeah, next person they meet, they marry. Yep. So you know, and even Dane Cook gets sick of it <laughs> in that movie, right? Yeah, because like it, he just wants somebody to love him, and and I I think. You know, Stanford could market itself as that sort of good luck Chuck type school, but I don't think, I think at the end of the day, you want your guys to stick around the way that Walker Little, you know, didn't declare for the draft and he's coming back. So I don't know. It's it's complicated, but I'm just trying to find a bright side. At some point in time, this becomes a, this becomes a serious issue, I think. I think that it becomes a serious issue when, 
when your scholarship numbers, because my mind you, Stanford already didn't have a full uh, didn't have a full complement of players. So I I just don't see how overall that this could be a good thing. You know, but I I am I'm open I'm open to being wrong. I'm open to being wrong because right right now I was looking at their scholarship distribution. They have they have five quarterbacks on their roster right now. They have a bunch of running backs. None have really played very much. <clears throat> They're really thin at wide re- receiver on their roster. They only have six wide receivers that are already in school. Six. Yeah. You can't even make it through practice with six wide wide receivers. <laughs> they have more. Oh. Mm, oh, wait. Never mind. <laughs> These guys are still. Uh, sorry. They only have four wide re- receivers because the seniors are still on their roster technically. Yeah. So, dude, this is not. They're a long way from being able to fill out a full 85 man scholarship roster team. So. True, but and I just I'm thinking about thinking about it this way. Stanford recruits against some of the best schools in the country, right? Like they they go head to head for some real high level four and five star kids. So if a kid is sitting there and saying, like, man, I really want a Stanford education, but I want to play football for Alabama. You know, like I want that experience. And David Shaw is the only coach in the country that can walk into their living room and tell them, why not both? Then in some way that serves as an advantage for them. Like they might be able to get kids that they wouldn't get otherwise when those kids realize that David Shaw isn't just tolerant of the transfer portal because those are the rules but he's actually in favor of it. Yeah. And we're not going to know unless we hear from him. And that's going to be the first question that I ask him at Pac-12 Media Day this year. Um, a team that's benefiting from this transfer portal <laughs> is Arizona State. Uh, obviously, they've had a couple kids leave like the uh, like uh, the quarterback. Yan- Joey Yellen. Had yeah, Joey, yeah, Joey Yellen. He went to Pitt, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's to be expected. He's a freshman. He's like, I'm not sitting behind Jaden Daniels because he's not getting, he's not going to just suck. So, so he's not coming out of the lineup and I'm not sitting here forever waiting on him, which I don't mind at all. But them picking up, um, you know, uh, some of the, 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 uh, the line, the guard from Stanford, they picked up some other guys. I, I, it just and that's the weakest spot on Arizona State. Is there yeah. what was their offensive line? So You're it right. looks they they were definitely in huge trouble on the on the offensive line. They're in they're in deep trouble, and now they've got and they'll they'll at least be returning two freshman starters. I believe uh, their senior backup center from last year, Cade Cote. I believe he was granted a sixth year of eligibility. So all of the sudden they're going to go from what was probably going to be the worst offensive line 
by far in all of the Pac-12 to having a sixth-year senior at center, to having two returning starting sophomores that they'll be able to roll out there, and then Kellen Deesh from Texas A&M, six foot seven, uh, number sixty-eight overall player in the country when he committed to Texas A&M for the class of 2016. And then they got Henry Haddis from Stanford. And as long as they're able to keep all of these guys healthy, then the transfer portal could essentially have helped Arizona state go from, you know, from worst to maybe up near first, probably not first, but up near there. I remember Henry Haddis at one point was a four star with rivals as well. I think he got downgraded a little bit toward the end of the process, but you know, I went out and I watched that kid practice when he was in high school, shook his hand. He has literally the biggest palm. Biggest hand. It felt like a get slapping hands with a walrus's fin. It's the biggest <laughs> hands I've ever seen in my entire life. And he and and he already he has starting experience in the Pac-12. So when you have Henry Haddis and Kellen Deesh both coming to ASU, and then you have the, you know, the, you have the two freshmen who started who are who are gonna be uh, sophomores, you know, it's not, it's not the most ideal situation. You want to be able, um, I remember one time, uh, the Arizona state described the way that they wanted to recruit offensive linemen. They wanted it to be like shark's teeth where you were really only playing seniors. When those guys fell out, there's another row coming up right behind them. Right. But their recruiting was so bad for so long that heading into next year, they only had, uh, if, if they were not granted that sixth year exception, they were only going to have one junior or senior on the roster, and that was an Oregon transfer whose name is escaping me right now, Who uh, Cody Shear, I believe, who didn't really play much at Oregon, so he has no experience either. And that was going to be a real rough situation, but they definitely, the transfer portal helped them upgrade big time. Yeah, th- yeah. so Arizona State is going to be a force to be reckoned with, with for this upcoming year. Now there's the issue of Pac-12 basketball. Right now, according to Andy Katz and a lot of the other projected brackets, you have five Pac-12 teams making the cut. And it just so happens that those are the teams that are in top of the standings right now. You have Oregon, they project to be a three seed. Colorado is projected to be a six seed right now. They have Arizona as a as a five seed. And uh, USC as an 11 seed and Stanford as an eight seed. Those are the potential ways that it'll shake out. Obviously, with the way the conference is going, who knows who will finish in the regular season top spot? So you, you have three ranked teams right now. You got Oregon at 14, Colorado at 24, and Arizona at 23. However, the first Five teams in the Pac-12 all have three losses right now. Oregon, seven and three. Colorado, six and three. USC, six and three. Arizona and Stanford are both five and three. And then following that, you got UCLA, who's in striking distance, I guess, if you will, only a game and a half back. And the loss column is you got, yeah, you got UCLA and Cal as well with only four losses. And then Arizona State as well. So this is the trickiest thing that you've ever seen because how can you reconcile a team like Oregon, 
going off and beating Michigan, beating all these really high quality teams, but then coming in conference and struggling so mightily against, you know, against Washington State. Then you lose to Stanford, which was you you basically got housed. You made it e- closer at the end, but it's still a 10 point victory. And then you got USC, who uh, went to overtime with Oregon, lose, uh, just getting demolished by Colorado, just getting demolished by Colorado. It just doesn't make a lot of sense what we're seeing. But this is the Pac-12. Same way that we got crazy results in Pac-12 football, we're getting crazy results in Pac-12 basketball. But the good thing is the conference perception overall is better. So you're not going to get three teams in the tournament like you did last year, which is a good thing. I mean, but the, the probably out of all the results, the most puzzling thing is the Washington Huskies being two and eight in conference and 12 and 11 overall and being dead last in the Pac-12, especially when they have two potential lottery picks on the same team. But we saw this when they had Markel Fultz as well. This is not new news. Uh, but this upcoming week on the Pac-12 schedule, you have the uh, the Bay Area schools playing Colorado and Utah. And you have uh, USC and UCLA playing the Arizona schools. And then you have Oregon and Oregon State playing later on the weekend as well. So the, the first game is on Thursday, <clears throat> which gives USC at Arizona, which is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's it's on ESPN two, um, and then so is UCLA Arizona State. The reason why it's such a big deal is because USC is sitting in striking distance, and they have a chance to potentially win the regular season crown. And Arizona and Sean Miller can stop underachieving. Um, but the the guys to watch in this game, Okongwu for USC. This dude is must see TV, fun fun to watch, and you would love to see Nico Mannion have a good game. And I mean, you you want the Pac-12 to look good on television, like you don't want it to be a blowout. Arizona's ranked, USC's right on the cusp, so you want it to be a highly contested game. That way, when it comes down to tournament seating, that you know, you can stay on those upper lines because upper lines mean if you're in one of the top four or five lines, then you're going to be in a geographically desirable bracket. You're not going to be put in the Eastern bracket if you're one of the better teams. This is just the way it works. So Pac-12 basketball, it is important. We have to, we have to know and pay attention to what is going on because with all the money stuff, with all the, um, you know, with all the things that we're hearing negative about the conference where we talked about is DEFCON 1 and all that, you still have to know that good performances in the tournament will lead to better recognition, better recruiting, and all of that. Now on the, um, now on the women's side of it, things are totally different because if you look at the top seeds, like the, the, the women's, they released their top 16 seeds 
going into the game. They released it at halftime of the Oregon-UConn game, I believe. And you had and that and going into that line, you you had Oregon at four, Stanford at six, Oregon State at nine, UCLA at eleven, and Arizona at number thirteen. So in the top thirteen seats, you have five Pac twelve teams. That's by far the most in the conference. And the thing that makes the conference look even better is is that you had U- UConn, who is the 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 litmus test, the you know for all of college football. I'm sorry for all of college, women's college basketball, which is what Tennessee used to be. Now UConn, you can judge your success based upon how you do against UConn. Oregon went to UConn in, in in stores and won, which is pretty incredible because until Baylor beat them. Uh, a week or so ago or two weeks ago they hadn't lost there in like 98 at home whether it's Hartford or there in like 98 games incredible and it just speaks to how good the conference is because you have Oregon State who's dominant Stanford who's dominant when they're playing out of conference teams but you have the Pac-12 teams beat up on themselves I mean if you have five teams in the top 13 it's going to be hard for a team to stay at number one because they're going to lose games. It's hard not to lose games when you're playing top competition every single game. And no other conference has that sort of um, has that sort of competition. And if you look at the regular rankings, not only is uh, you, you have all those teams in the top 12, 12, you also have Arizona State in at 19-2. So you're going to have six Pac-12 teams get into the tournament. Probably all within, they're all going to be five seats or above. Uh, depending on Arizona State, maybe a six seed. But the five or six and above. And then you're going to have five of them in the four seat or above. So it's your chances of winning a championship are much much better much much better than they have been and oregon sitting at number one in the conference at nine and one tied with stanford nine and one ucla ten and eight and two arizona seven and three arizona state six and four and oregon state six and four it's pretty incredible to see this and it's good to see hometown representation uh thank you guys though thank you guys for listening to the pac-12 apostles We appreciate your time, appreciate your energy. Make sure that you send us an email if you have any questions, comments, anything that you want to talk about to imad at unafraidshow.com. And we appreciate your time. Make sure you guys share the feed with a friend. Peace out. Catch you guys later.